Chapter 16 of The Sea Witch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elliot Miller. The Sea Witch by Maturin Murray Ballou. Chapter 16 The Cannibals. The first intimation of his brother's escape from confinement reached Captain Bramble through the letter which we have already given to the reader. His rage knew no bounds. He saw at once that he was foiled completely, that he could do nothing towards his arrest, even without casting such dishonor upon his own name as would publicly disgrace him for all time to come. In vain were all his efforts to discover the guilty assistance or assistant of the prisoner, as it was not known at what hour he escaped. Even the three sentinels on duty at the time could not be identified, though Leonard Huss's friend Bill did more than suspect that some trick had been played upon him during his watch. But he could say nothing about the matter without making too such a case of self-crimination as to ensure punishment, and that, too, of the most sanguinary character. Leonard Huss knew this and feared him not. There was another party sadly disappointed in this state of affairs, one who only assumed sufficient importance to be noticed when her services were needed, but she nevertheless felt and suffered, probably, as much as any one of our characters. We refer to Maud Leonardo. She had found lodgings in an obscure residence in the town during the course of the trial, and had resolved to remain until the sentence was given of the result of which no one doubted, and even until the detail of that sentence should be executed, which he had already learned would doubtless be death by hanging at the yard-arm of the ship in which he was confined. Poor girl! It was sad to think that she could gloat over this anticipated result. Such was the power of her revenge. But in the same ratio to the intensity of her secret satisfaction at the hoped-for execution of Captain Will Ratlin, whom she had once loved, but now so bitterly hated, was her disappointment, vexation, and uncontrollable anger at the idea of his escape, of which she was one of the first to learn. Captain Robert Bramble, though he did not attempt to find his brother, would hardly have believed that he would remain openly in town, and at the mission-house. But Maud reasoned more truly. It was the first thought that had entered her head that he had probably gone thither to be near and with Helen Huntington, and thither she stealthily crept, and watched until she saw him, and thus satisfied herself. Knowing nothing of the discovery that had been made, she hastened to give information to Captain Bramble, supposing that he would take steps for his immediate arrest, but in this she was disappointed. She could not understand the apathy which seemed to have overcome the English officer who so lately had thirsted for the young commander's blood, and she went away from him amazed and dejected. In vain, thus far, had her attempts resulted as to sacrificing him whom she had so bitterly despised. She had trusted to others thus far. This she said to herself, as she mused at the fruitless attempts she had been engaged in, now she would trust to herself but how to do it she hardly knew. When he was under her father's roof, and she unsuspected of hostility to him, it would have been an easy matter, with her knowledge of poisons, to have sacrificed his life, 
but now it was not so very easy for her to find an opportunity for any sort of approach to him. But this seemed her last and only resource of vengeance, and she cared to live only to con consummate it. Actually afraid to bring his brother again to trial, for fear of a personal exposure, Captain Robert Bramble was now in a quandary. He was looked to by the court for a conclusion of the suit he had brought, and was now so situated that he found it necessary to screen that brother whom he had so bitterly disliked, from the cognizance of the authorities. Indeed, he became nervous lest the exposure should become public in spite of his efforts in concealing the singular facts. All this, of course, tended to the safety of his brother Charles, who had rightly anticipated this state of affairs in relation to the part that Robert must needs enact, and therefore felt perfectly safe in awaiting an opportunity for shipment to England in the first vessel bound thither. And it was at once agreed between Mrs. Huntington, Helen, and himself that they would go together. The period of the return of Captain Bramble's ship to England was fast approaching, and passage had been offered to Helen and her mother therein. But Helen had promptly declined it, and induced her mother to do so also, though it required some persuasion to bring this result about. Charles Bramble, of course, kept within doors at Sierra Leone, and did not, by exposing his person, provoke arrest. He was reading aloud to Helen, a few days subsequent to his escape from his brother's ship, when the door of the room was stealthily opened, and a person stepped in. "'Well, Leonard Hust,' said Charles Bramble, "'what has brought Jan here so clothed in mystery? Art well, my good fellow?' "'Yes, very well, Master Charles, but I come to tell you that you must get away from this place, for a few days at least. It's not safe for you.' "'What's in the wind, Leonard?' Have the courts sent me out? Yes, Master Charles, and your brother Robert has agreed to deliver you up. Has he? added Charles Bramble, musing. I did not expect that. Yes, sir, and I thought I would just slip over here and advise you to get off as quick as possible, for the officers will be over here in an hour or so. Thank you, Leonard. What is that protruding from your pocket? Pistols, sir. Very good, Leonard. I will borrow them. They're yours, sir, with all my heart. Are they loaded, Leonard? With two slugs each, sir, and as true as a compass. These formidable preparations startled Helen, who looked beseechingly towards him, whom she loved better than her own life. She came and placed a hand timidly upon his shoulder, and looked into his face with all the wealth of her heart expressed in her eyes, and she said, Pray, pray, Charles, be cautious. Be prudent for my sake, will you not? "'I will, dearest,' he whispered, as he leaned forward and pressed his lips to her pure white forehead. "'We shall not long be separated. I feel that we shall not.' Leonard Hust, who had befriended the younger brother whilst the two were under the parental roof, still clung to the interest of Charles Bramble. He had already procured for him a guide, a negro runner, who knew the coast perfectly, and with him for a companion and a small pack of provisions, and well armed, Charles Bramble determined to make his way by land back to Don Leonardo's factory on the southern coast. In so doing, he would be able to not only elude all pursuit, but would also be able to further his own pecuniary interest by settling up his affairs with Don Leonardo, and arranging matters 
as to the property that had been entrusted to him by the owners of the Sea Witch. Charles Bramble awaited impatiently the coming of the guide, until indeed he was afraid that longer delay would expose him to the arrest which he had so much desired to avoid, and then telling Leonard that he would hasten forward to the outskirts of the town, where he would await the guide. Leonard Hust promised to bring him directly, and thus they parted, the younger brother hastening toward the jungle at the environs of Sierra Leone, at length reached the designated spot, where he quietly awaited the arrival of his guide. It was quite dark before the expected individual came, but at length he did arrive, and thrusting a note into the hands of the impatient refugee, waited for orders. Charles opened the paper and read in a rough schoolboy hand that he, Leonard Hust, had intended to come see him off, but that he could not, and that the bearer was a faithful guide, somewhat eccentric, but reliable. Charles Bramble looked carefully for a few moments at the companion of his long and dangerous journey. He saw before him the person of a negro, slender, agile, rather below the usual height, and clothed after the style of the settlers, in pants and jacket, but with a red handkerchief bound upon the head. In a coarse leathern belt the negro wore a shirt, double-edged knife, and a pistol, while in his hand he held a short, sharp spear, which served for staff and weapon both and was designed more particularly for defense against the wild animals that infested the jungle in all directions. The guide was painted in the face after fantastic style often adopted by the shore tribes in Africa, in alternate lines of red and yellow and white, so as to give a most strange and inhuman expression to the countenance. But Charles Bramble was familiar with these tricks of the race, and saluting the guide kindly told him his plans and asked if he could guide him on his route. Being assured in the affirmative, he felt satisfied, and the two, by the light of the moon, which was now creeping up in the heavens, commenced their journey, intending, after passing a few leagues, to make up their camp, light their fires to keep off the wild animals, and sleep. The resting place was at last found, and after the usual arrangements had been completed, and a circle of fire built around them, the two lay down to sleep. Fatigue soon closed the eyes of our young adventurer, and he slept soundly, how long he knew not. But after a while he was awakened by the breathing of some decayed branches near him, and partially opened his eyes, half asleep, half conscious, when to his utter amazement he beheld, or fancied he beheld, a dozen pairs of glistening eyes peering at him from out of the jungle. He did not stir, but feigning to be still asleep, he cautiously watched to see what all this meant. They surely did not belong to wild animals, those eyes. He partially turned, without moving his body, to ascertain if the guide was still with him, but found that he was gone. There was treachery somewhere. There was danger about him. This he seemed to feel instinctively. But still feigning asleep, he almost held his breath to listen. He soon learned, by his sense of clearing, that there was some half-dozen or more of the negroes near to him, and that he was subject of their conversation. He could even detect his guide's voice among the rest, though the conversation was carried on scarcely above a whisper. He had on a previous voyage taken much pains to familiarize himself with the language spoken by the shore tribes in the south, and now he had little difficulty in understanding a considerable portion 
of the remarks which were making by the gang who were secreted in the jungle so near to where he was lying, while he was pretending sleep. He soon learned that his guide was followed by half a dozen or more of negroes who had lately visited Sierra Leone on some business of their own, and who, in common with the guide, belonged to a fierce and warlike tribe whose chief village was but a few leagues from Don Leonardo's factory. At first it was difficult to make out the actual purport of their scheme, although Charles Bramble could guess what he did not hear, and was satisfied that the cannibals intended to lead him, apparently in good faith, to the neighborhood of their village, where he was to be seized, sacrificed to some deity of those poor ignorant creatures manufacture, and afterwards be eaten in council with great ceremony. All this he could distinctly make out, and certainly it was anything but agreeable to him. But Charles Bramble knew the race he had to deal with. He fully understood the fact that one after white man with his wits about him was equal to cope with a dozen of them at any time, and he felt prepared. He gathered at once that it was their intention to guide him safely until near their own village, where they would seize upon him and from that moment make him a prisoner. Meanwhile, none but his guide was to be seen by the traveller, so it was agreed, and he was to receive care and kind attention until the time appointed. Knowing all this, of course he was prepared for it, and now saw for the present and a few coming days he need have no alarm, and beyond that he must trust to his ready wit, personal prowess, and indomitable courage, which was natural to him. It may seem strange, but reasoning thus, he soon fell to sleep again in good earnest. The next morning he met his guide with frankness, and the best of feeling seemed to prevail day after day, until suddenly one evening before night had fairly set in, and the day before he had anticipated any such attempt, the negro suddenly fell upon him, and pinned his arms, and otherwise disabled him so that he was completely at their mercy. Already they had arrived at the environs of their village, and into it they bore him in great triumph. Council was at once held, and it was resolved that on the morrow the prisoner should be sacrificed, and cooked and eaten. This was anything but agreeable to our adventurer, but he did not despair. Thrusting his hand into his pack, he discovered an almanac that he had brought with him from Cuba. Turning over the hieroglyphics and singular figurines, to the wonder and amusement of the negroes, he saw that on the morrow an eclipse of the sun would take place, and he immediately resolved to turn that fact to good account. He summoned the chief of the tribe and told him, to no small amazement, in his own tongue, that tomorrow the great spirit that ruled the sun would put a veil over it in displeasure at the detention of the white child by them but that as soon as they should loose his feet and arms and set him free, the veil would be removed. Amazed at such an assertion, the chief consulted among his brethren, and it was agreed that if the white man's story proved true, that he should be released. At the hour appointed on the following day, the negroes were surprised and terrified to see the gradual and almost total eclipse of the sun, and attributed it to the great spirit's displeasure because of their detention of the white prisoner as he had foretold. They hastened to loose his arms, and to set him on his way rejoicing, 
They even bore him on their shoulders for leagues in a sort of triumphal march, and did not permit him to walk until they had brought him safely and deposited him with his arms and pack before the doors of Don Leonardo. End of chapter 16